I've not been up here for a while. I've, I started a new job back in June, um, and uh, Ben and Michael have kindly taken up uh, some of the kind of talks that I've been doing. I've been pretty busy. Um, but one of the things that I've enjoyed doing in my kind of snatches of free time um, for the last few years, really, is I, I enjoy to write. Particularly, I enjoy writing for um, kids, so like little, I don't know, rhyming stories or... Um, I've been in a few competitions and that kind of thing. I really, um, I really enjoy doing that in, in my spare time. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy about it is that process of starting with nothing, uh, getting an idea, and then moulding the, the words and the sentences and the story in order to communicate what it is that I'm trying to communicate, whether it's to make people laugh or or to think or to feel represented and seen and understood or, or a combination of those and other things. I really enjoy that process. And as well as the kind of actual writing itself, I also enjoy kind of thinking about writing and, and reading books about writing and listening to podcasts about writing when I'm driving around. And I'm a bit of a geek, but I'm, I'm okay. I don't mind being a bit of a geek. Um, one of the things that people often talk about in these um, writing books or whatever is the idea about writing what you know writing about things that you've experienced or felt or been a part of. Because then the things that you do write have more kind of truth or weight or uh, they're more real. Even if it's a kid's book and it's, it's just silly, um, although kid's book are rarely just silly, but even if it's that, underneath there needs to be some sort of kind of authority for why you are the right person to, to write that story. Now, I find it fascinating to think about the people who wrote the books of the Bible. Um, who were they? Why did they decide to write what they wrote? How, how did they feel when they were sat there with the, the blank piece of paper, piece of parchment, whatever it was, in front of them? And it's, I find that really interesting to think about. And it's, and it's really interesting to do that as we start to look at the Gospel of Mark. Who was Mark? Well, Mark, or John Mark, as he was known, was a follower of Jesus. But he wasn't one of the disciples that went around with Jesus uh, during his ministry. Uh, he was a disciple of Jesus, and he knew those disciples very well, and particularly Peter. And it's well established that Peter is Mark's source for writing this gospel. He's the one who he got the stories from. He's the one who gave him the eyewitness account. As you read through Mark, um, as we do that over the next few weeks, and I'd encourage you to, if you can this week, read through it in one sitting so you get a big sense of, of the whole of the book. It's not very long, it's the shortest gospel. But as you read through that, just notice how the accounts that feature Peter are often really vivid um, and how his weaknesses are really put on display in the gospel of Mark. That's because Peter was the source for this gospel. And what is the gospel of Mark? Gospel of Mark is essentially a biography, and it's considered to be the earliest of the biographies of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the biography, biographies of Jesus that we have in the Bible. Mark was the earliest of those, written in the kind of mid to late 50s AD. So Jesus died um, in the early 30s AD. And so when you hear that the Gospel of Mark was written in the mid to late 50s AD, and that that was the earliest, your first thought might be, 
that's quite a long time after Jesus was on earth. Kind of 20, 25 years until the first account of his life is written down. Why did it take so long to get the stuff down in writing? Can we really trust it? Well, here's what happened. Um, just after Jesus had died and risen and, and returned to heaven, there were hundreds and hundreds of people around who were eyewitnesses, who were there, who saw Jesus, who touched him, who even witnessed him after he'd risen from the dead. They heard his teaching. They, they saw his miracles. They witnessed the crucifixion. They met him after he came back from the dead. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, one of the letters in the New Testament, we're told that 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. And the, and, and the writer of that letter, Paul, he encourages the readers of the letter to go around, to find the people who, who were there, who saw Jesus alive, to talk to them, to check out the, the truthfulness of the claims that are being made from the people who saw it. And so for the first couple of decades after Jesus' um, after Jesus' life, if anyone had tried to kind of twist the story of who Jesus was and what he did, it would be pretty difficult for them to do so because there was hundreds of people around who were there who could, who could talk about it, who could say, what that person is saying is a load of rubbish. I know that. I was there. But then you get to the 50s AD, and the eyewitnesses start to die off. And those early Christians know that the truth of who Jesus was and what he did is so important to maintain. And so they know how important it is to create this accurate eyewitness record of the life of Jesus while it could still be proven or disproven. And so they can the writing. And so Mark, Mark wrote his gospel. He wrote it at a time when Peter was still around, where he could talk to him, and where there were plenty of others around who could testify, attest to the truthfulness um, of the account. And, and what happened was, within decades of it being written, others came along, when the eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses had died off, and they started to write other accounts of Jesus' life, which either gently manipulated or outrightly changed the story. They made wild claims about Jesus in some of these Gospels that you may or may not have heard about. But those Gospels never stood the test of time. Why? Because there was an account like Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. Accounts verified by eyewitnesses that you could go to to testify, to, to attest the truth of what happened. So that partly answers the question of why did Mark write this Gospel? But there's actually more to it than that. And to, and to see that, what we need to realise is that when Mark wrote his biography, his, his goal wasn't simply to collect the facts together and put them on a page. Jesus' ministry lasted for three years. There were countless miracles and teachings and, and events that happened, way more than were recorded in Mark's Gospel. Yes, Mark collected facts. But he collated and he selected the stories to go into his gospel and he presented them in such a way as to make a particular point. 
earlier this year, Cathy, uh, me and the kids were down in Cambridge briefly. Um, and while we were there, we visited a couple of museums, including uh, the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Now, Cathy is uh, without doubt the museum uh, buff in our family. I kind of get so far in and I lose the will to live, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but there were some really interesting uh, artifacts on display. Um, there was the usual kind of pots and bits of jewellery and all of that kind of bump that they fill it out with. I'm sure some of you are really offended by that. Just an opinion. Um, but there was also some really cool stuff. There was this amazing eight metre high um, carved Maori flagpole. And there were artefacts that uh, Captain Cook had collected and, and brought back from the places that he'd been to. Those things were quite interesting. But what was more interesting for me was the, the narrative, the story that the museum was trying to tell. When you first walked into the museum, you were greeted with this kind of information board. I didn't take a picture because I didn't know I was going to be doing this illustration. But essentially, it read like an apology. The museum curators recognised that many of the artefacts that were on display there ended up in their hands as loot in the aftermath of violence, or else were acquired in other ways that really wouldn't be considered appropriate today. And in fact, since 1961, that museum has been returning artefacts to the people who they rightly belong to. And so you had this apology on the way into the museum, and then as you went around, there were gentle reminders here and there of the fact that they knew that it wasn't really appropriate that this thing was in this museum, that it was an important cultural piece to some people group, um, and, and it should be with them, really. The tone and the story they were telling with those artefacts in that museum was one of apology. But I reckon if you went around that museum 100, 140 years ago, um, at the height of the British Empire, you'd read a different story as you went around. There would have been a tone of maybe bravado, of, of swagger at how this institution had gathered these things from across the world. And my point is this. A museum isn't just a collection of items put on display. They are there with a purpose. They tell a story. And the same is true when you read a biography. Just as I was saying earlier, people write with intention. They gather the artefacts, they gather the, the events, but they present them in a certain way because they want to communicate something to make people laugh or think or, or, or to think or to feel seen or, or whatever it is that they're, they're communicating something in what they choose to include and how they uh, arrange the material and mark is no different to this mark doesn't simply list a series of factual events he's curated them in such a way as to make a point to have a message and he makes that perfectly clear in his very first line turn with me to mark chapter one um, it's on page um, 1002 of the Bible on the table. Mark chapter 1, if you turn there with me now. <coughs> Look with me at that first line that Mark writes. He says this. The beginning of the good news... Mark makes his intentions of this biography very clear. He wants us to see that there is good news in here. And so, as we go through Mark, you need to keep asking that question. As you read the different accounts, you need to keep asking the question, what's the good news here? 
Why is this good news? You might come to church, you might come to uh, Christianity for a whole variety of different reasons. Perhaps you come for community. You want to be part of something. You want to have people around you who can share the ups and downs with you, who can support you when you need it, and who you can support when they need it. You maybe come for community. Or maybe you you come because you want that sense of there being more to life than just the stuff that we see around us. You want to connect with the spiritual. You want to get a taste of the supernatural. That might be why you come. Or it might be that you want a moral framework to live by. You like the idea of order. You like the idea of rules for life, of there being a right and wrong. You want to know how you should live. That's why you come. Or for some of us, it might be that actually you come to church with much more negative expectations. You're expecting those stereotypes to be fulfilled, that you'll come and you'll get a bashing and you'll leave feeling guilty and inadequate as you're shown all the ways you fail to live up to who you should be. Now, you will find some of those things in church. In fact, some of them are are good things that flow directly from Christianity. But none of them are the main event. None of them are what it's all about. And Mark gets this. At the heart of Christianity is good news. It's not about something you do. It's an announcement of something that's been done. That you can just enjoy the benefit of. At the heart of Christianity is good news. And at the heart of the good news is a person, Jesus. Just read on with me in verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so here's what to expect as we look through Mark. You should expect good news. You should expect to hear about a person, Jesus Christ, and as you hear about him, joy should bubble up within you. Weight should be taken from your shoulders. You should find hope stirring within you, light breaking through darkness. You should find fear and worry and guilt being done away with. That's what should happen as we read the good news about Jesus in Mark. As we reach the the final few hours of 2023, and as we start a brand new year tomorrow, this is what every single one of us needs. Good news. That's why Mark has written this book. He wants us to know the good news for ourselves, just like he knows it for himself. And because this good news is all about a person, Jesus, Mark is very careful to to lay out his material to answer one specific question in this book. The question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Mark shows us who Jesus is in in his gospel in two stages. The gospel can effectively be split into two halves. In the first half of the book, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. And so Mark lays out the evidence for us. He records all the things that Jesus did and he said until eventually in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter finally gets it. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? That's the big question of Mark. Who do you say I am? And Peter hits the nail on the head. Peter says, you are the Messiah. And we'll come back to what that means in a minute. 
So that's, that's the first half of the book. You get to the midpoint. Peter grasps who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. But he hasn't quite grasped what that means. And so in the second half of the book, Mark shifts his focus. It's no longer who is Jesus, but it's what did Jesus come to do? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? That's the second half of the book. And here in our passage today, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, we get a kind of big picture introduction to the whole thing. Let's dig a bit more into those verses. Look with me from verse 1 again. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now Mark doesn't start his gospel with the Christmas story. That's what you expect at the beginning of a gospel, isn't it? You expect angels and shepherds and and mangers and all of that, but you don't get any of that. Instead, Mark takes us back 700 years earlier to a prediction from the prophet Isaiah. See, back then, God's people were waiting for a Messiah to come. Now, Messiah just means anointed one. It means uh, anointed king. If you watched the um, coronation last year of King Charles III, um, do you remember that bit in the ceremony where they put up those screens, I think they were, uh, and, and, and he went in there and you couldn't see what was happening um, and someone, I guess, was talking over the top of it and, and, and there was something going on in there, and you, but you weren't allowed to watch it. At that point in the ceremony, what was happening was the anointing. The king was getting, Charles was getting oil on his head and he was being anointed as king. He became the anointed one. He became king. And Messiah just means anointed one. But Jesus isn't just an anointed one, a Messiah. He's the anointed one. The Messiah that had been promised for thousands of years. The king that everyone was waiting for. And, and Mark takes us back to Isaiah chapter 40 to see this. So just flip back there with me now. Um, Isaiah chapter 40. It's on page 725. 724. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 40, page um, 724. I'm just going to read the first little bit of that. It says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, in ancient times, when um, a a king was visiting a city, they would prepare, make preparations for him to come. A straight and level road would be made. They would they would fill in the valleys. They would they would lower the hills. They would make a straight and level road for the king to arrive. And in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah was announcing that God's people should expect a king to come. Did you notice what he said? It wasn't just any king. 
Verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. See, this king that was coming for God's people wouldn't just be another human monarch coming from another land. This king would be God himself, the Lord coming to earth, to his people. Just imagine hearing that. Mark is starting his gospel with the biggest claim possible. Jesus is God. Come to earth to be king. There can't be any bigger news than that. God has come to earth. And Isaiah's claim is that you'll know that he's coming when a messenger arrives ahead of him. When God comes as king, the preparations won't be like those for a normal king. A messenger will come to the wilderness and prepare the way. That was the prophecy, 700 years before the time of Jesus. And Mark is saying this. He's saying, look, the time is now here. The prophecy is being fulfilled. A messenger is coming to the wilderness to prepare the way. He's here. Look with me um, back to Mark chapter 1. And I'll read from verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here comes John the Baptist onto the scene, into the wilderness, with his interesting kind of lifestyle choices, his uh, outfit of, of camel hair, which can't have been particularly comfortable, his, his diet of locusts and honey. Now, he wasn't some sort of, like, hippie doing these things. These weren't simply diet or food choices. He was wearing the clothes of Elijah. Now, Elijah was uh, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, he was really significant. And the people back then were told that one day another prophet would come like Elijah. And so John the Baptist was wearing these things and eating this stuff to say this. He was saying, I'm the prophet you were waiting for. I'm the one who will bring God's message to you. And my message is the message from Isaiah 40. The Messiah is about to come. Isaiah 40 is happening right now. That's what he was doing. And the place that he um, brings this message is in the wilderness, just like Isaiah said it would be. Now, the wilderness, that wasn't just like a convenient space to get people together. There's a bit of a clear in there, so why not use that space? And it wasn't simply that John did it in order to tick that box of the Isaiah prophecy. God chose the wilderness to be the scene of the action for very specific reasons. Now, wilderness uh, in the Bible isn't uh, how I kind of imagine a wilderness. I don't know if it's the same for you. When I think of wilderness, I think of kind of like a tangle of, of, of 
overgrown forest with dangerous beasts lurking within it and that sort of thing. That's what I think of with wilderness. But a wilderness in the Bible um, is more like a desert. It's a dry, barren place, devoid of, of water and nutrients. It's a harsh environment, a hopeless environment, a place where there is no life. The messenger, John the Baptist, is to prepare the way for God coming as king. And the place he is to do that is the wilderness. And that location is intentional. It serves as a picture. Maybe you feel like you're in the wilderness right now. Your life or parts of your life feel dry and barren. Your finances are stretched. Your relationships are are close to breaking or maybe already broken. Your mental, your physical health is fragile. You're thirsty and nothing seems to bring refreshment. Your life feels like a desert. If that's you, then Mark wants you to hear that the good news of his gospel, the good news of the Messiah is for you. That's why it's taken place in the wilderness. But there's another reason as well. And that's because time and time again in the Bible, the wilderness is the place where people meet God. It's where Jacob wrestled with God. It's where Moses um, had the burning bush experience. It's where the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness met with God on Mount Sinai. And isn't that true for us? In our lives, aren't those wilderness times, those times of of desperation and, and great need, over and over again, aren't they the times that we meet with God? Where we feel him closest, where we realize that we need him, where we cry out to him and we find that he is there. He was there all along. And he's there with us in the wilderness, ready to meet us and refresh us and satisfy our thirst. If you're in the wilderness right now, whatever that looks like for you, and I want you to know this, God wants to meet you there just like he always has. That's the good news Mark wants us to hear. And so there is John, John the Baptist, in the wilderness. And he's got a job to do while he's there. He's to get the people ready to meet their God face to face. And when you meet someone um, important like that, or when you meet someone important at all, you have to prepare for it, don't you? I wonder, uh, did anyone here ever meet the Queen? I'll actually see. Oh, Bob, there you go. No one else, I don't think. Sorry if I can't see you. I didn't ever meet the Queen, um, but I, I did once kind of really frantically wave, wave a flag like vaguely near her when I was about six years old, um, but I didn't actually get to meet her. Um, but th- apparently, if you um, met the Queen, there were certain kind of things that were involved in, in getting prepared to meet her. You were told that you were to address her as ma'am, as in jam, apparently. You were told the appropriate um, curtsy etiquette if you're a woman. <laughs> you were told only to speak if you were spoken to first. You, were, you had to dress appropriately, appropriately. You had to make sure you'd wash behind your ears and so on. When you meet someone important, you have to prepare appropriately for meeting that person. And the role of John the Baptist was to prepare the people for meeting the most important one, for meeting God. 
the Messiah. And so he went out into the wilderness and to prepare the people, he baptized them. He baptized them with what we're told in verse 4 was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance is one of those religious words that we've probably all heard, but it's not always immediately obvious what it means. But actually, repentance is a pretty simple idea. All repentance is, is turning around. You're heading in one direction. When you repent, you turn around, you, you do a 180, and you start heading in the opposite direction. That's repentance. And so what were the people turning from? And what were the people turning to? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the rest of that little phrase that the word repentance was in. The phrase was, it was a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why baptism? Never thought about that. Why did John come and baptise people? Why did John feel the need to dunk people in the water to prepare them to meet Jesus? Well, washing in water, even submersion in water, wasn't a new idea to the Jews back then. Washing in water was an act of, of purification. It was symbolic of washing themselves clean of their, of their sin so that they could approach God. Sometimes that even involved immersion, complete immersion, to, to wash themselves, to purify themselves. But here's what's different about John's washing. The difference is this. Who was doing the washing in this instance? No longer were the people washing themselves. No longer were they submersing themselves under the water to wash themselves clean of their sin. Someone else was doing it for them. John was preparing the way for Jesus, and here's what he was saying. He was saying, you need to be washed. Your sins need to be forgiven. You need to be washed clean of them. How is that going to happen? God is coming as king, and he wants to meet with you in the wilderness, but he is pure and perfect and good, and there is not a stain on him, and that is not true of you. To meet with him, your sin needs to be dealt with. That's how you need to be prepared to meet the Messiah. But you can't do that yourself. You can't wash yourself clean. You need to be washed by another. I'm going to wash you with water, John says. But we all know, they all knew, we all know, that water doesn't purify us from sin. It doesn't wash us clean of sin. But, John says, I'm doing this to point you to something else. Look with me at verse 7 again. This was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And so here's how repentance fits in. John is saying this. He's saying you're walking away from God. That's, in essence, what sin is. Walking away from God. You need to repent. You need to turn around, but you can't do that on your own. You need to be washed. Your sin needs to be dealt with. 
Repent. Turn around. But don't turn from sin by trying to wash yourself. Don't turn from sin by trying to sort out your own mess, by trying to pull your socks up and and sort it out yourself, because that's impossible. You need to be washed by another. Turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. The one who is more powerful than John. The one who can truly wash you. The one who can forgive your sin. Turn to Jesus, the Messiah, the King who came to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. Turn to the Messiah who who took your sin and nailed it to the cross. Turn, Turn to the Messiah who took the punishment that you deserve for your sin so that you don't have to. Turn to Jesus who came to deal with your sin and to baptize you in his spirit coming uh, the spirit coming to live within you and to give you the power to turn your back on sin and turn instead to Jesus to walk back towards God repent that's what John's call is turn from sin and turn to Jesus trust him be baptized by him rely on him and his work for your forgiveness not your own that's how they were to prepare to meet for to to, to meet Jesus. And it's exactly the same today. Everyone, every single one of us needs to hear this as we head into 2024 because this is the best news available. All of us, every single one of us, are in the wilderness without Jesus. All of us are stained with sin and we can't wash ourselves clean of that. All of us are in the wilderness with no hope of life. But then along comes Jesus. And he says, I'll deal with your sin through my death and I'll wash you clean. I'll give you my spirit and I'll enable you to change, real change. That's the good news Mark wants us to hear. That's the good news that we'll dig into over the next seven weeks as we look through the first few chapters of Mark. And so, as we go into 2024, let's make this our resolution. Alongside whatever resolution you've had that you thought about earlier, let's make this our resolution. Let's turn to Jesus and let's keep turning to him day after day because it's only there that we receive this good news. It's only there where we we will receive refreshment where life will be found, whatever wilderness we find ourselves in this year. Let me pray.